Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I am your host, Howard Sides. Uh, today, we're going to be starting, or we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We're starting in chapter 10. Chapter 10. And I wanted to point out, sort of, as an introduction, uh, sort of, uh, we've mentioned before how Revelation will uh, follow a certain timeline of events and then in a few chapters it goes and 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 starts back in the same timeline covering events happening somewhere else so there's things going on in heaven there's things going on on the face of the earth there's uh things going on at different uh times on earth and then there's some things going on uh with the underworld and things of that nature so sometimes the bible will go back and pick up uh some events that cover a period that has already been spoken about in an earlier chapter. And as an example of that, we have here uh, four chapters that are pretty much kind of linked together that kind of do a rewind. Uh, 10 and 11 go together and 12 and 13 go together. And basically what 10 and 11 are, uh, as far as a title, uh, would be the purposes of heaven revealed. The purposes of heaven revealed in chapter 10 and 11. And then later on, uh, when we get to chapter 12 and 13 together, that's the purposes of hell revealed. The purposes of hell revealed. So 10 and 11 talks about things associated with heaven, and 12 and 13 talk about things associated with hell. And in uh, chapter 10, uh, we break it down into, uh, let's see here, one, two, uh, okay, well, actually, it's breaking down 10 and 11. There's two parts to each chapter. In chapter 10, you have the messages given by the angel of God in verses 1 through 7. The messages given by the angel of God. And then the second part of that is the mission given to the apostle of God in verses 8 through 11. The mission given to the apostle of God. And in chapter 11, uh, verse 1 and 2 are by themselves. It's the measuring of the temple of God. And then verses 3 through 14 will be the murdering of the two witnesses of God. The murdering of the two witnesses of God. Um, now, this is quite a lot of information, so I don't know how far we'll get, but we'll. Uh, I'll point out the, um, I guess the points. <laughs> I'll point out the points as we get to them. And so, I mean, if you're a note taker like I am and you want to know uh, how to break it down, um, I, I try and give that to you. Okay, so uh, the very first section here, chapter 10 verse 1 through 7. We'll read that. And this falls under that title of the messages given by the angel of God. The messages given by the angel of God. So Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. It says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, 
and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. Okay, so this is the messages uh, given by the angel. Now, the first thing we note, uh, verse 1 talks about the appearance of this angel. The appearance of this angel. And um, with the appearance, it talks about basically two things. First of all, his apparel, and then second of all, uh, his appearance. And uh, to start, when, when you read that first part of the verse, there, and I saw another mighty angel, this distinguishes this angel, first of all, from Christ. Christ would not be considered another. He is the mighty and he ain't an angel, but sometimes it does refer to him as the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that sort of thing. But here we know it's not Christ. It is a different angel altogether. And, and the fact that it puts that term mighty in there, again, I refer back to uh, what I've mentioned before about angels. We get this picture, this vision in our minds of these uh, long blonde-haired ladies with wings and halos on their head and white pure white robes, which I think they probably do have that. That's probably about the only thing that's correct. Uh, but when you look at some of the descriptions in the Bible, some of these angels, uh, it doesn't look anything like that. They're, they're scary creatures. And I'm not talking about they're ugly. I'm just talking about the fear with the power they present. And yet with the rank of what uh, angels are in, uh, John has to set this angel aside as even mightier than what the normal standard angel is and i saw another mighty angel okay uh and then it says there that he came down uh now that's the, his source and his authority there he come down from where we would he come down from heaven it says it come down from heaven so uh <clears throat> excuse me uh the first thing uh to really note here is it talks about his apparel what he's wearing and it says uh in that one first phrase there for going too fast slow down uh clothed with a cloud clothed with a cloud and this is where i think some people associate the angels playing harps you know and living in a cloud or whatever up in the clouds maybe it's from this particular thing but this cloud here is symbolic of divine intervention and judgment it's symbolic of divine intervention and judgment. Now, clouds are the chariots of God. It's it's his. It's not like he needs it, uh, but sometimes it seems like uh, they're his vehicles of choice. I guess you'd say. Uh, Psalms one o four and verse three actually mentions that phrase 
uh, and it, uh, it says, uh, who maketh the clouds his chariot. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, the next phrase, it says he's crowned with a rainbow. Crowned with a rainbow. Um, the rainbow, as of the past few years, has taken on some hard knocks. Not because of anything the angel, uh, rainbow has done. Uh, as far as beauty in the natural earth, um, it, it's kind of hard to beat a rainbow. Um, the way I understand it, I know it's a reflection of light from water or vapor, maybe, in the air, off of whatever. Um, but the way I heard it one time was you have to be at the exact perfect angle in relation to where the sunlight is and where the water is to be able to see it. In other words, you have to be at the perfect angle that it's reflecting off to see the rainbow. Not everybody sees that rainbow. I, I don't know how true that is. I uh, read that somewhere. It wasn't off the internet, but anyway, I thought that it was pretty unique. Uh, but, but what I'm getting at <coughs> is um, the rainbow uh, of late has become this symbol of uh, the gay pride movement and a lot of Christians automatically are shrinking away from uh, using rainbows or uh, possessing rainbows in, in clothing and, and that sort of thing and, and I kind of understand that and the shame of it is and it is it's a shame is, is that it's a perfect example of everything that God has made that is beautiful uh, when man gets his hands on it we we destroy it Everything that God has made is beautiful. But when man gets his hands on it, we destroy it every time. Every time. But it says here that this angel is crowned with a rainbow. He's not wearing the rainbow. He's crowned with a rainbow. Now, the rainbow, of course, is symbolic of God's faithfulness to his covenants and his mercy. Faithfulness to his covenants and mercy. And you go right back to the first mention of it, Genesis chapter 9, uh, verses 13 through 17. And it says, I do set my bow in the cloud, the rainbow, and it should be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth, not between him and Noah, not between him and mankind, but between him and the earth. Verse 14, and it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have, have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So three times there he mentions this covenant between him and all the flesh. It's not just man. Uh, it's, not, it's not a covenant between him and just Noah. It's all flesh, which separates it basically from all living creatures, but it's, it's a lot of living things. I'll just leave it at that. I don't have time to go into what the difference in all of that is. Uh, but again, the rainbow institutes the principles of human government to curb the outbreak of sin. The rainbow institutes the principles of human government to curb the outbreak of sin. Whenever we see 
the rainbow, it should remind us how it came about. God flooded the earth, and then when the water dissipated, he brought the rainbow out. So the rainbow is part of the glory of the throne of God, and that's mentioned uh, earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 3, there's a rainbow around uh, the throne. This rainbow is caused by the light of the angel's face shining through the cloud. So it says there, uh, uh, and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. So it's this light off of this angel's face, and it's reflecting out of the cloud, and so they, they, you see the rainbow there. Now, God is about to call earth to account for breaking the everlasting covenant of which the rainbow was the token. Um, the bill has come due. All right. So that is uh, his apparel. Uh, now let's look at his appearance. Uh, it mentions here that uh, his face is as the, uh, it, specifically, verse 1, part 2 there, it says, and his face was as it were the sun. As it were the sun. That means that it was not the sun, literally, but that it looked like the sun, as it were. And in the next phrase, and his feet as pillars of fire. So here's the two uh, descriptions of his appearance. Now the face as the sun. This is the same description of Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. And it mentions that, Matthew 17 and verse 2. It says, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, S-U-N, and his raiment was white as the light. Now, this is symbolic of this angel acting in response to God's holiness. Um, there's an, a perfect example of that, again, back in the book of Genesis with Moses. Uh, you remember when it says that he, uh, I, I, don't, I didn't write it down as a reference, but uh, he went up into Mount Sinai and was with God for uh, quite a while. But, but the key there is that when he come down out of the mountain, it said that he, um, he shone from being in the presence of God so much. He, he glowed so much uh, that it scared the people. It, they were afraid to come around Moses. Um, so you, you can imagine, uh, and, and part of that story is, you remember when God asked, uh, Moses asked God if he could see his face and and God told him, no, you can't look directly on my face. It'll kill you. He said, but what I'll do is I'll hide you in this cleft in the rock in, in a cutout between these two rocks. And when I walk by, I'll put my hand over your face. But after I pass by, I'll remove my hand and you can see the afterglow. Uh, James Knox has a great message on uh, what Moses saw. Uh, if you want to Google that, uh, James Knox, K-N-O-X, down in Deland, Florida. Uh, and a lot of his messages are online through his church or other people put them online too. But uh, that message he has entitled, What Moses Saw, incredible. That's a great message. Uh, and it refers to that. So again, my point is that Moses was not even actually in the uh, presence of God in heaven. In other words, an unfiltered presence of, of God's holiness, not cut away at all. I mean, it's just full blown. Moses could not be in that. But yet, when he come down out of the mountain, after even just seeing the afterglow that the people were afraid, you can imagine what this angel could do from coming 
in the very presence of God, uh, how he must have shown. Okay? Uh, and in that second description, it says feet as fire. Uh, fire is always symbolic of judgment. Always symbolic of judgment. The feet as fire symbolizes that God is immovable in the outpouring of these judgments. In other words, once these judgments have started, uh, you're not going to alter it. You're not going to change it. You're not going to delay it. You're not going to uh, delete it. it. It has already started. Uh, and once it starts, it's too late to stop it. So it's a done deal. Okay, so uh, that talks about the first section here in verse 1, the appearance of this angel. Now in verses 2 through 7, it talks about the actions of this angel. The actions of this angel. And it involves, um, is it four, five, six? Yes, six different things. First, you'll see the parchment in verse 2a. Second, his posture, his posture, verse 2b. Third, the proclamation, verse 3a. The pounding, verse uh, 3b. The prohibition, uh, verse 4, and then the possession, verse 5 through 7. The possession, verse 5 through 7. Okay, so let's get into that and break it down and see what it says. Okay, all right, first of all, the parchment. Verse 2a, it says, and he had in his hand a little book open. A little book open. Now, this is contrasted to the seven-sealed book that was mentioned earlier that could only be opened by Christ himself. Uh, you remember it said, who is worthy to open the book? And, and the lamb come forth and said, you know, he's worthy to open the seals. And only Christ could. Okay? So this is a little book open. Now, the phrase here is telling us that this book was not needing to be open. It was already open. Look what it says. And he had in his hand a little book open. It's already open. There was nothing private about it or sealed off or contained. It was, it was an open book. Now, we are not told what this book contains. Uh, we can only speculate, uh, hint to it as from other things, but uh, it doesn't specifically say what this little book is. But the book as opened could be symbolic of uh, the Old and New Testament prophecies of the coming events. Um, I don't know. But that, that's just one of the hints uh, or suggestions, I should say, that, that I've read of um, that kind of fits. Uh, there, there's many of them out there, but we don't really know because it just doesn't tell us. So all we can do is speculate at this point. Okay, so that's the parchment. Second of all, look at his posture uh, in the second part of verse 2. Uh, it says there, and uh, he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. Right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth. Now, the reason for that is that this symbolizes his size and his power. Now, of course, if you're standing on the beach and the waves are coming in, uh, every fraction of a second, you could have one foot on the earth and one in the sea, but that that's, no, no, that's not what this is talking about. The sea and the land here stand for the sum total of the universe, okay? 
and it symbolizes the power of God stands as firm on the sea as it does on the land. It symbolizes also ownership or possession and or possession. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11 verses 24 through 25 says, Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea shall your coast be. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon, as he hath said unto you. All right. Uh, number three, the proclamation. First part of verse three. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. So he crowd, uh, crowd, he cried. Uh, with a voice that sounded like that of a lion. Um, trust me, TVs do not portray the volume of the sound that a lion's roar has. I had the unique opportunity once, been several years ago now. Um, uh, my daughter made it to the state finals in this, uh, they called it Math Fest. It was a math competition. I think she was in the uh, sixth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, something like that. Well, anyway, so we, we actually went to Georgia and while we were there, we had me and my wife and my daughter, uh, had an opportunity to go to the Atlanta zoo. Now, one of the big standouts down there was they had a panda. Oh my goodness. That was incredible. They had a like live streaming camera that you could watch them and all this kind of thing. But the other part that, that I'm getting to here, um, they had a lion around the other side. Now, I've seen a lion before. We've got a, a a very large zoo here in North Carolina. Right here down the road, as a matter of fact, it's not 20 minutes from the house, uh, North Carolina Zoo in Ashboro. Uh, but anyway, and I, I, I'd never been through this before, so I, I had no idea. But when we walked by that lion's uh, cage, I was a good 100 feet from him. And he let out this, I mean, just unleashed this roar. And it was like not even directed at me. It was just generally in my area. And when I heard that thing, I was like, holy cow. I could not believe the volume. I could feel the roar. And so when it talks about him being the king of the jungle, yeah, I have no doubt. When <laughs> he lets that thing go, wow, it was impressive. It was really, really impressive. But being that it's, uh, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth is symbolic of the voice of God. Uh, Joel chapter 3 verse 16 says, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. All right. Uh, number four, the pounding. The pounding, uh, second part of verse three, it says, when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, these thunders are in response to the lion-like roar of this angel. Thunder is symbolic of judgment, but it also is symbolic of revelation. Thunder reminds us God has revealed himself through history to man, first in creation, 
and then in various ways through revelation, such as the scripture, uh, through his son, and through the Holy Spirit. Uh, thunder is portrayed as the voice of God seven times in Psalms 29, verses 3 through 9. I don't want to uh, read the verses, but, well, you know what? Why not? Um, but Charles Spurgeon uh, suggests reading this psalm during a thunderstorm to grasp the full effect of what was going on. So apparently it was written while there was this thunderstorm going on, and it describes it, and I'll kind of get to that in a minute, but I'm going to read the, the passage first. Uh, and I even titled it The Seven Thunders of Revelation 10, verses 5, uh, or 3 through 4. Uh, verse 3 says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars, yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness, the Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve, and discovereth the forests, and in his temple doth every one speak of his glory. Okay, so in that passage it mentions the voice of the Lord, and it also mentions some places there in the land of Israel. Uh, James Boyce, in his commentary, that his last name, B-O-I-C-E, James Boyce, in his commentary says, and I quote, In the early church, this psalm was often read to children or to an entire congregation during storms, end quote. And G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary, he says this, If verses 3 through 9 be read with the eye upon the map of Palestine, it will be seen that the storm gathered over the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean, and burst upon the land in the north, striking Lebanon in its fury. Then it swept southward, shaking the wilderness of Kadesh, from beginning to end, the noise of the storm is the voice of the Lord, end quote. So that's mighty powerful. And so it says that seven thunders uttered their voices. And in saying that, uh, in Psalms 29, uh, we see, let me see, one, two, yeah, three aspects of his sovereignty. Uh First of all, in verses 3 through 4, we see his sovereignty over the waters. Uh, his, sovereign, uh, his sovereignty over the waters. Uh, and that deals with natural man. When it says the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Waters is often symbolic of the unsaved masses of mankind. Uh, so that, that tells us about the scope upon many waters. It tells us about the strength. It's powerful. And the splendor. This full of majesty. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks creation into existence. Uh, in John 1, 1, we are told that the word logos, that's the Greek word for the word word there, logos, uh, we are told in John 1, 1, that the word is a person, the son of God. It is through him, the word, that God created all things. That's John 1, verse 3. 
and it's through him that God sustains all things. That's Colossians 1.17. So here the storm is building as it approaches land from off the sea. And here the phrase voice of the Lord is used three times as it depicts the Trinity speaking to mankind. The Trinity being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit in one. Okay, so that's verses three through four. Uh, verses five through six talks about uh, he is sovereign over the mountains. He is sovereign over the mountains, and that is dealing with the spiritual man. Again, the voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. Now, verse 5 tells us that everything stately is humbled. And verse 6 tells us that everything stable is shaken. Uh, God, who is that? Uh, uh, I can't remember his name. It's an oldie song. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis, I think, had that song, Whole Lot of Shaking Going On. <laughs> That's exact. Now I know that, you know, forgive me, Lord, but that's what it's talking about here. I mean, there's a whole lot of shaking uh, going on. Not like there is in Revelation, but it sure grasped the uh, attention of the writer of this song. But in verse 5, it says, uh, 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 the phrase there, voice of the Lord, is only used once. And it is referring to salvation. It only needs to be once. Because you can only get saved once. Um, Ephesians tells us you were sealed until the day of redemption. Uh, you don't reach that day of redemption till we're done on this earth. So you cannot lose your salvation. If I mean, think about it. If you could lose your salvation, then Christ would have had to go back and sacrifice himself on the cross again and again and again and again. Uh, I think it's the book of Hebrews tells us that his blood was a perfect sacrifice once and for all. Once and for all. That's all it took. Okay? So, the phrase here, voice of the Lord, uh, pertains uh, to salvation, as it's used once. Uh, he may speak again with equal force and power to bring man to his knees. Uh, that phrase, cedar of Lebanon, uh, these trees were once the pride of man. Uh, I've heard that phrase many times, and I don't know, haven't read a lot of detail on... Um, what made these trees so special, whether uh, it was the grain in the wood, uh, the strength of the wood, the beauty of the wood, but I, I do have a little bit of information on them. Uh, it says that to break these trees uh, was considered a considerable task. They were a not only a hardwood, they're, they're softwood trees, and then there's hardwood trees. Softwood trees normally you associate with pine trees. Uh, a lot of general building material made out of pine trees because it's so uh, soft and easy to navigate. Hardwood trees are, uh, there may be others, but around this area you've got oak, you've got maple, you've got locusts, um, poplar, but, and poplar is one of them that's kind of right in the middle. It's a little of the softer but it is considered a hardwood. It is a little bit softer. But but compared to those, once wood dries out, in other words, once you cut like the shape that you want of a board or how it is, uh, you don't just put it up. I mean, you can, uh, but you have to cure it. Uh, there's different methods to cure it. But if you air cure it, if you let it sit out 
for every inch of a board uh, takes about a year to dry out. And if you take an oak board and you let that thing dry out and then you try to nail it down, you, you'll see what I mean by hard wood. Yeah, you better bring a drill bit with you <laughs> or you're going to ruin a whole lot of nails bending them. I'm telling you, it's hard. So when it says here that uh, uh, it breaketh the cedars, uh, th that's a considerable statement there because these cedars of Lebanon were, were very hard to break. Uh, they grew about 70 to 80 feet high. And the trunk base, okay, the bottom of the tree, was about 40 to 50 feet wide. Okay, so they had a wide bottom before they grew as tall as they did. The branches on these trees extended out 100 to 110 feet. So <laughs> that's a massive tree, very massive tree. Now, as of today, there is only one small grove of these trees left, and they are not nearly as majestic as their ancient relatives were. It's all gone. You know why? Because man got his hands on it. That's right. Man got his hands on it. But these trees here are also symbolic of the Christian as well, being evergreen, beautiful, aromatic, widespreading, slow-growing, incorruptible, long-lived, and many uses for them. Uh, describes Christians, the way Christians ought to be, at least, anyway. Hmm? Right. All right. So, again, verse 5 talks about everything stately is humbled by breaking the cedars of Lebanon. Verse 6 tells us everything stable is shaken. And the first reference to that, it talks about skipping like a calf. It refers to the very... Uh, mountain ranges shaking and jumping like young calves. If you've ever li lived on a farm or on a ranch, um, the young animals are going to play. I, I'm, they're no different than human babies. And when they're young, they like to run, stretch out the muscles, get the lungs going. Um, and that's what it's talking about. The, the mountains are going to be skipping like a calf. It's talking about how they kind of jump and skip when they run. That's what it's talking about. Uh, and then it mentions two places by name, Lebanon and Sirion. This describes the two largest mountain ranges to the north. Sirion is known today as Mount Hermon. Lebanon means heart, and Sirion means Yah has prevailed. And the unicorn here uh, is referred to uh, an animal that would best be described as a wild oxen. It's not what people refer to about the one-horned animal looked like a horse. No. Okay, wild oxen. Uh, the Lord prevails by speaking to our hearts. Lebanon is symbolic of a Christian heart, thus changing our wild nature. So it is good for us to remember that God is not in nature. He is over nature. He's not a part of nature. He's in control of nature. Okay, so um, uh, let's see. Verse 3 and 4 talks about he is sovereign over the waters, dealing with a natural man. Verse 5 and 6, he is sovereign over the mountains, dealing with spiritual man. Finally, verse 7 through 9, uh, he is sovereign over the wilderness, and that is dealing with carnal man. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire, the voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. 
The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve, and discovereth the forests. And in his temple doth every one speak of his glory. Okay, so there's three pictures we see here. One of danger, one of desolation, and one of deliverance. Uh, <clears throat> and they all have a voice of the Lord associated with each one. All right, so the first voice of the Lord uh, is a picture of danger. A picture of danger, and it's in that phrase, divideth the flames of fire. Divideth the flames of fire. And basically what this is a picture of is lightning streaking or darting out of a cloud. Uh, so it's a lightning strike that it's talking about. And carnal man is in the danger of being caught between the two worlds. Uh, carnal man uh, is spiritual trying to live like the world uh, and can't fully commit to either one. And the Lord says that this man is in danger of God stepping in and shaking him to pieces or setting him on fire to straighten him up. That That's a pretty harsh uh, warning. A stern warning, I should say. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So the second picture we see, uh, the second voice of the Lord has to do with a picture of desolation. And that's in the phrase, shaketh the wilderness. Shaketh the wilderness. Now, the life of a backslider is nothing but a wilderness. Um, I would probably venture to say, if you've been saved any amount of time, at some point or another, uh, we may have either backslid or or been very close to it. And, and you know how miserable that is. You know what I'm talking about. I've been there myself. It is uh, <laughs> a perfect description to say it's like a wilderness. It is. It's, it's desolate. Uh, so the Lord must shake this man out of his complacency in the wilderness of barrenness and bleakness. Um, sometimes we get so caught up in it, we don't even realize how bad off we are. Uh, yeah, we feel miserable, but we don't take action to fix it. Uh, it's kind of like uh, getting stuck in a rut, you know? And so God sometimes has to shake us and, and get our attention and get us back on track. Okay, um, the third voice of the Lord uh, is the picture of deliverance. Picture of deliverance. Uh, and that's in the next phrase there. Maketh the hinds to calve and discovereth the forests. Okay, now on occasion storms can be so bad in the Middle East that sheep, if left alone, give birth out of fright. Let me say that again. On occasion, in the Middle East, the storms that come across there sometimes are so bad that the sheep, if left on their own, they don't have a shepherd over them, watching over them, uh, can get so scared that they give birth. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, in the event of an approaching storm, uh, shepherds would gather their sheep together in a group facing inward so they know they are not alone. And of course, that's strength in numbers. And of course, when they're looking at each other, it, you know, there's your strength in numbers. They can see if they were facing outwards, they may not be able to see each other. They're facing inwards. So this is out of fright. And God does not want us to be frightful. God would rather us be fruitful. God wants us to be fruitful. Okay? All right, so that covers the pounding 
the fourth part, the pounding. Uh, the fifth one is uh, the prohibition. The prohibition, that's back here in Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. And that comes with that phrase there. It says, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. <clears throat> uh, and, and Charles Lee Feinberg, he kind of puts the statement on it uh, in, in, in referring to this passage here when he says, and I quote, in this book of disclosures, this is the only detail sealed, unquote. Now, John was, as we can see, and, and as he usually did, uh, he was about to write down uh, what these thunderings had spoken or what they'd said, uh, but he was stopped by a voice from heaven that said, seal up. Now, this phrase has only been uh, used four times in the entire Bible. Uh, yeah, sorry, about to lose my place, making my little notes of edit notes here. So this phrase has only been used four times in the entire Bible. Uh, the strange thing is, of course, this is obviously one, Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. All other three are in the book of Daniel. One's in chapter 8, one's in chapter 9, one's in chapter 12. Uh, we'll take time to read them. And I think I'll have time to get through my little portion here while reading it. Uh, so the first one, Daniel chapter 8, verse 26. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And then the next chapter, chapter 9, Daniel, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And then uh, the third time, Daniel chapter 12, uh, verses 4 through 9, it says, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words, and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river, and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear, <coughs> excuse me, by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be fulfilled. Sorry, finished. These shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So here the phrase seal up refers to the revelation of this prophecy uh, that was given to Daniel uh, not being revealed until a later time. And the same goes true with the phrase in Revelation 10 4. Now apparently what God uh, what John witnessed, the thunderings saying, uh, was so electrifying and astounding uh, that man could not handle it un until a later time.
I mean, why else would he tell him not to write it? The very the one thing in the book of Revelation he says, oh, let's not say that yet. And, and it was because of the time John was in. It's not the time we're in. Uh, but it, it'll be revealed. Uh, stick around for that. <laughs> no, actually don't. <laughs> I encourage you not to. <clears throat> All right. Uh, the final one, the sixth one, the possession. The possession. That is talked about in verses 5 through 7. And that is split into two parts. Verse 5 and 6 is the first part. It talks about the mercy of God. And then the second one, verse 7, is the mystery of God. So the mercy of God and the mystery of God. Verse 5. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lift up his hand to heaven. Now, the angel's firmly planted feet give determination and emphasis to what he is about to say God is going to do. And in the first part of 6, he says, And swear by him that liveth forever and ever. The validity of this oath is not based on this mighty angel, but rather on God himself who created heaven, the earth, and the sea. We talked about there in uh, verse 6, uh, the rest of verse 6. Now, uh, the, the thing I want to drag out here in the second part of verse 6 is this phrase there. It says that there should be time no longer. Right at the end of verse 6 there. That there should be time no longer. It's, we're going to look at two words here. Time and longer. And, and the statement is constructed as an interesting phrase. So first of all, time. Time is the Greek word chronos. K-R-O-N-O-S. Chronos. Uh, it refers to a duration or space of time. Now, some suggest this indicates that time will be no more and categorize this statement with there will be no more sea, chapter 21, verse 2. There will be no more death in chapter 21, verse 4. And there will be no more night in chapter 22 and verse 5. But, but there is a slight difference here that changes everything. And that is the word longer longer the word more is missing here and the word longer is used in other words the, 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 look at the, the end of verse six there again that there should be time no more is what people are sitting in there when they're associating it with the end uh of the book of revelation it says there will be no more see no more death no more night. It doesn't say that here. It doesn't say that there should be time no more. It says that there should be time no longer. Longer here is the Greek word eti. Eti. E-T-I. E-T-I. You think such a small word can have a drastic effect on what a sentence means. Now, eti means of a thing which went on formerly whereas now a different state of things exists or has begun to exist. So a, a simple explanation is it's not a stoppage of something. It's a change of something. Something has changed. So this is not saying that time will be no more, but rather time has run out. 
There will be no more time before God completes his purposes on earth. There is no more waiting. Well, it's in the future, but it's on the way. No, it is now. And verse 7 goes on to explain this a little bit clearer. And, and again, it's uh, the second part of our thought here. It's the mystery of God. The mystery of God. It says, uh, the voice of the seventh angel. And, of course, what it's referring to is the seventh trumpet judgment, which will be covered in the next chapter, specifically chapter 11, verse 15. If you want to mark that, that's what it is. It's the seventh trumpet by the seventh angel, chapter 11, verse 15. Uh, and then it uses the phrase there, the mystery of God should be finished. Now, this mystery is ages old and was questioned many years ago. Uh, in the book of Psalms, chapter 74, uh, verses 1 through 11. Psalm 74, 1 through 11. O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Lift up thy feet unto the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. A man was famous according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees, but now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. They have cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. They said in their hearts, Let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet. Neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. And the psalmist here is, is Asaph, who is asking, uh, Lord, why are you mad at us? Uh, why are you allowing evil to rampage and your people to suffer? Uh, we need to see your hand moving to protect your people. Now, in addressing this mystery, uh, Walter Scott writes, and I quote, Does it not seem strange that Satan has been allowed for 6,000 years plus to wrap and twist his coils around the world? work evil and spoil and mar the work of God, what havoc he has wrought. He is the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. God's saints have ever been the objects of his fiercest malignity. Is it not a mystery why God, the God of righteousness and holiness, allows evil to go unpunished and his own people to be crushed and broken on every hand? Truly this is the mystery of God. Is it that he is indifferent to the wrong? indifferent to the sorrows of his people? Nay, they were impossible. God bears with evil till the hour of judgment arrives when he will avenge the cry of his elect and come out of his place to punish the wicked. The checks and restraints upon evil now are unseen as to their source and are only of partial application. Everything in the world and in the church is out of order save what God by his spirit produces. Now, however, this mystery of God is about to be finished, and God, by his Son, 
the heir of all things, will wrest the government of the world from the iron grasp of Satan, confine him as a prisoner in the abyss for a thousand years, finally casting him into the lake of fire for eternity, and then rule and reign in manifested power and glory. Unquote. So that's a pretty good description there. Basically saying, um, it, it's not that God's not wanting to end this stuff. It's not that he's not willing to. But once God enacts his judgment, he follows it to the end. And the mere blatant honesty of this thing is that if God unleashes and judges the sinful wickedness, he is also going to judge the Christian's wickedness. So be careful what you ask for. When we ask God to judge and punish these that are committing the sins, hey, we're guilty of that just as much as they are. All right? So, so, and that's what it is. It, it is still God's grace being shown on those who are wicked that don't know any better. They don't know any better. And that's a sad state of affairs that, that God has not opened their eyes to show them their condition. That's what it is, okay? All right, uh, back to chapter 10. Uh, where are we? Verse 7. That's right. <laughs> All right, the next phrase. And he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So the answer to the mystery was declared by God through his prophets. Psalm 73, 17 says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Now, the psalmist Asaph wondered how the wicked could prosper until he heard the word of God preached in the house of the Lord. Then he understood that it's not about prosperity at all, but rather mercy being shown by God until the seventh trumpet sounds. And, and basically what happens is when the seventh trumpet sounds, all the mercy is gone. There is zero mercy from that point. Up to the seventh trumpet, there's always a hint, a, a, a fracture, a, a remnant of mercy somewhere until that seventh trumpet sounds. Okay? All right. So uh, that's the first half of chapter 10. Well, we got that far. First one through seven. Um, so we'll pick up uh, in the next episode on verses eight through 11. And that talks again about the second half of chapter 10 the mission given to the apostle of God. The mission given unto the apostle of God. All right. Um, thank you once again for listening. Um, I, I know there's a couple of more of you listening now, of, of, uh, seeing where you've logged on and things of that nature. So I certainly appreciate that. Um, I'll say it again. I've said it before. I want to thank all of those in all of those countries. It's mind boggling. Uh, Germany, France, uh, uh, was it Austria, Australia, England, Ireland, uh, trying to do it from memory, um, Puerto Rico, uh, I said Ireland, yeah, anyway, if I missed you, I'm certainly sorry, but, um, listen, we're just here to read God's word, to study it, and to learn, we're doing this together. I may be the teacher, but I'm learning with you. So, uh, in effect, God is the teacher. Christ is the teacher. He, he's telling us about himself, and that's what we're reading. It's the revelation of Christ, not of John. Uh, so, be wary of that if it's written in the front of your Bible. It should not say 
the revelation of John. It should say the revelation of uh, Jesus Christ. John was the writer. Jesus was the revealer. Okay? Um, so again, uh, God bless you. I, I hope this encourages you. I, I hope it uh, sheds some light on some of the things in the book of Revelation. I say it all the time. I, this is the most intimidating book to Christians right here. Revelation. Even though Ezekiel is much harder to understand. It's the book of Revelation that really throws people for a loop, I believe. So that's why I wanted to tackle it myself, learn of it, and, and gain what is the message out of it for us in this day. So sure fits in this day. I know it. Uh, we're, we're, uh, you can smell it. I mean, it's right around the corner. Uh, we're we're going to be right in the midst of everything in this book in no time at all. I really believe that. Okay, so... Um, all right. Have a great day. Uh, God bless you. Uh, remember to pray for each other. Pray for me. And um, God bless you for listening. Thank you so much. And have a great day.